0: So if you'd like to look with us, we're in Romans. Uh, We've been teaching through the book of Romans for the last pretty good while. And uh, we've got down to chapter 5, if you would like to turn and read along with us. We looked at verse 7 a little last time. But to back up and kind of get our thoughts together, where we are, what we've been looking at, um, from the beginning of Romans... Uh, Up to chapter 3, digging through sin and the depravity of mankind. And you know, the truth is, uh, uh, I appreciate Clark's, what he said this morning. But you know, people have a hard time swallowing that it's a work of the Lord. But if you never get man's condition down, if you don't nail down that man is hopelessly and helplessly depraved, you're not going to get anything else right either. But there's where Paul starts in the book of Romans. Man is helplessly and hopelessly lost in sin under the power of the devil and he's unable to do one thing to remedy that. He can't turn himself to God. He can't do better. He can't improve himself. He can't make himself righteous. He's got no desire for God. You know, people argue with that and... You get arguments in every way in the heart and in the mind of man. But the truth, the man out in the world in the pits of sin, he's got no desire to come to God. And the truth, people sitting in church that growed up there, that pray and that carry their Bible, that's lost, they've got no desire to come to God either. They're fine the way they are. And so all of man's in the same condition... He's hopelessly and helplessly in sin. And except God intervened, you know, you don't even have to look at me today, but if God had never sent His Son Jesus 2,000 years ago, there'd be no salvation. There'd be no hope. God had to intervene, and His arm had to accomplish a work that we could have a means of redemption. And certainly He did that. And it's not by works in the least bit. Man's works has zero nothing to do with his salvation. That's what he covers in chapter 4. Wherefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Man's not going to stand before God at the judgment and be able to proclaim one thing that he did that made him worthy to be there. God makes man worthy and man is made worthy in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. And when you begin to focus and look at works, it's it's a mess, is what it is. But it's by the grace of God alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, the only means of redemption. So in chapter 5, he started, therefore, being justified. So those that are in Christ Jesus, those that God has redeemed by His own hand. Not people that's come to the altar, not people that's made professions, not people that's joined the church, but those that God, by His hand, has plucked out of deception, and as Greg looked at Wednesday, I believe, translated them into the kingdom of the Son of God, those that God has redeemed by His power, they are justified Now that means to be declared righteous. Are they righteous by their works? Can a man be righteous by his works? Innocent. Have you ever been innocent? Can you ever be innocent? We've already broken the law. It's not by man's works, but the saints of God are justified. They're innocent in God's eyes because they are hidden. In Christ Jesus. By the work of Christ. We have peace with God. God's provided peace. And a rest to those that he saved. A rest in Christ Jesus. There is no more laboring for salvation. We don't labor to be right with God. We don't labor to be righteous. I don't have to worry. Well if I don't do this today. I'm not going to be saved tomorrow. No. I'm resting in the work that the Lord Jesus has already accomplished. And it's not, well, if God does this in the future, it's already been done. The work has been accomplished. The Lord Jesus has already died. We know it was acceptable because He rose from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God, never to be offered again. The work that's required for my righteousness has already been done. And there I rest in that work. There the saints of God have peace, a salvation that can't be taken away. And the saints can rejoice, as we see in verse 2, in the good times and in verse 3 in tribulation also. Knowing this, that to the saved and the born again, those that suffer tribulation in this life, God is refining them more and more through the tribulation under the image of the Son of God does not change salvation in one bit. We can suffer and be drugged through the mud for years of our life. We can live on top of the world for years of our life. None of that has any effect on the salvation of the soul of man. It's resting in Jesus, remember. It's anchored, as He says beautifully in Hebrews, it's anchored behind the veil. It's anchored to that Where man can't get to. It's anchored in a work that God did. So there, there's peace. And so he's going to prove this because I believe right here is what happens when tribulation comes. Is man in his mind says, well, if God loved, then this situation would not be. That's the devil. The devil's a liar. He's always been a liar. He would like to cause man to doubt and disbelieve and turn away from the only hope of life that there is from God Himself. And so, well, maybe maybe we've never been through tribulation. Some have and some will be because it comes to all. And when tribulation comes and the mind and the devil begins to attack in the mind and say, well, if God loved, well, the Word of God's going to prove in verse 6, when we were without strength, In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So we were without strength. That's diseased, feeble, unable to perform or do anything. So it's not that we did something that caused Christ to come because we were without strength and unable to be a benefit in the least bit. And if you remember last time, we talked about that example in the book of Ezekiel of that infant laying in a field on its own, with nobody to love and to care for it, and what's the result of that always going to be? If you take a one-month-old young man and laid it in the field and left it, is it ever going to survive? Is there any instance where that baby can make it on its own? It's going to be death every single instance. That baby cannot make it except somebody intervene. There's mankind. That's a picture of mankind. There we are, hopelessly and helplessly lost. And you know what's going to happen every single time? We're going to die in that condition, lost and undone, and in the wrath of God, we're going to lift our eyes in a literal burning hell. Well, we don't believe in hell anymore. Well, Jesus did. And Jesus talked about hell. I would say that's great motivation to come to Christ Jesus for redemption, to escape the wrath of God. And if there wasn't a wrath to escape, then why would God allow His Son to suffer? Think about what God put Christ Jesus through It must be a terrible place that man's going for Christ to suffer like that to keep him out of there. But man is without strength. He's unable to do anything. And at that time, Christ died for the ungodly, not for the righteous, not for the churchgoer, not for the moral people, not for the good ones, not for the ones that pray, not for the ones that believe the Bible. But Christ died for the ungodly. And you want to get it down, and if the Holy Ghost ever brings it to you, I don't care how good you've been, when God convinces a man, he'll be ungodly. In his own eyes, he's going to see himself as ungodly. So, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. We've all heard this before. And you know, you think about it on a whim. He's not talking about dying for someone on a whim. That a situation arises and maybe you push somebody out of the way, that takes your life and it was done without really, it was just instinct. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about sitting down and thinking it through. For a righteous man, now that word there means an equitable person. Somebody that does the right thing. Somebody that makes right decisions. Somebody that's fair across the board and does the right thing. But how difficult would it be for you if here was a righteous man that was going to die... How difficult would it be for you to sit down and say, you know, that man's a good man and it would be good for him to live because he does all of these righteous deeds. I'm going to give my life that he could live. Would it be easy for you to do that? Scarcely. That means with great difficulty. With great difficulty for a righteous man. Now, you think about a righteous man, a good man, he says in just a minute, but how hard would it be for you to sit down and make the decision, well, I'm going to leave my wife, I'm going to leave my husband, I'm going to leave my children, I'm going to leave all of that stuff behind, and I'm going to give myself to die so that this other fella here can live because he's such a righteous person. (coughs) Could you do that? We're not talking about children either. No, we're talking about a man. Somebody. I could not do that. I could not sit down and think and say, and that's what he means on over in Romans, which is your reasonable service. That's what that means. That, that word reasonable, you hear that often. And it's applied as God's not asking an exuberant amount of you. He's just asking something that's reasonable. That's not what the word means. It's with reasoning. You know, the the lamb that they brought to the temple and they cut its throat, that lamb had no reasoning. He was doing what he was caused to do. Well, here we've got reason. And we're thinking about it. And we're weighing it up and we're just not going to die for that righteous man. Well, now, what about a good man? Now, a good man, that makes it a little more personable. Here's somebody that's been good to you, somebody that's done good for you, somebody that's took care of you, maybe, somebody that's helped you out in a tough time. How difficult would it be for you to lay your life down for a good man? Would you leave what you've got behind? To help a good man to escape death? See it's not it's not as easy as you think. But you know the Lord, the Lord said this in John chapter fifteen, we all know the verse. Greater love hath no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. Could there be any greater love shown? than that somebody would say don't kill them but take my life and let them go is there any greater love any greater sacrifice I might give you a hundred dollars might give you a thousand dollars that's a far call from me laying my neck down for your neck there is no greater love than that a man would say I'm going to lay my neck down And you can kill me and let them go that they might live. That'd take great difficulty, and it would take great love for a man to do that for another man. But you know what the Lord did? The Lord showed the greatest love that could ever be shown. It's said so much. It's quoted so much that the meaning of it's about gone to people's minds. We hear John 3.16 from a little child. But you talk about love now. You talk about mercy. And you talk about compassion that is untold. It would take great difficulty for you to lay your life down for a good man. And yet, but God commendeth to exhibit. Put on display. God's, God's already proven His love. God, if you love me, then do this for me. God, if you love me, would you work this for God don't need to show that He loves me. He's already put His love on display. It's been on exhibit. You know, that's what they have at the museum. You go to the museum to look at the exhibits, what they have put on display for you to see. Well, you know, God put His love for man on display for the whole world to see. You know what His love was? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now here, the ungodly is what's said in verse 6. And in verse 8, it's sinners, transgressors, and lawbreakers. You know who the Lord died for? Not good men. Not people that had benefited Him in any way. And not righteous men. Not people that always done the right thing. If that was the case, then as the disciples said, who then could be saved? No, he didn't die for those. Those that it would take great difficulty for us to die for. But boy, that man out in the filth of the world, you sure ain't going to die for him. But you know, the Lord Jesus, while we were sinners, not while we were seeking him, Not while we were serving Him. Not while we were being obedient to Him. Not while we were praying and begging God for help. But when we were sinners and willfully transgressing His law and satisfied to live in sin, satisfied to rebel against His commandments, when somebody said, well, God said this, you said, I don't care what God said. I'm not going to do that. I don't believe that. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what God says. I want to get away from that. That's the condition mankind was in. Mankind was hateful towards God, despised Him, despised His righteousness, and loved sin. Those are the sinners. And it was for that crowd that the Son of God died for. If you love them that love you, what thank have you? That's what the Lord said. But what about loving them that despise you? You know, the Lord Jesus loved them that despised Him. And you were, or you are, one of them. How do you know that God loves me? Because He displayed it. In the greatest display of love that ever has over the history of this world, there's been no greater display of love than the display that Christ Jesus had. Well, they forced him to do that. I beg your pardon. The Lord Jesus said, I could call at any moment and at any time. I can call 12 legions of angels And lay waste to this place. One angel rolled up on Sennacherib's army and 185,000 died in one night. And they woke up the next morning and there's 185,000 corpses laying in the desert. He could have called 12 legions. He could have called infinite. But you know what he did? He bore the shame and the disgrace, and the mockery, and the hatred, and the beating. I tell you the the emotional part of it, that'd be enough for most of us. The mocking, the spitting, the pulling the cloak over his head. And they punched him in the face and said, now you prophesy. If you're some prophet, tell us who hit you. The mockery and the, if you're really God, then come down off of there. It wouldn't take a whole lot of that for me to be very angry and me to say it's not worth it for me to do this for them. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't give $10 to somebody that talked to you like that. And yet the Lord Jesus, He bore the shame and the disgrace Not only that, but he bore the marks in his body as well. As they beat him with whips, they smote him in the face, they plaited the crown of thorns on his head, and they nailed him to the cross by his hands and his feet. He bore the the suffering in the flesh as well. And he endured it, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. You know what that joy was? Sinners being redeemed from sin being made righteous in God's eyes and being adopted from the power of the devil into the kingdom of God. Scarcely for a righteous man, peradventure for a good, but God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So he says in 1 John We love Him because He first loved us. I believe that's right along the same lines Clark was getting to this morning. That that love, the affection that man has towards God, that is not natural. You know what man does naturally? He says in Jude, as brute beasts, that's what man is. And his natural inclination is to sin and rebel against God. Man thinks so highly of himself. Man thinks so highly of his works. He thinks so highly of how good that he is. And I tell you, we can't go 30 minutes tomorrow morning without sinning in some way. My God, we're nothing. But you know, the Lord died that man could be righteous. And it was that sacrifice... And that work of God today through the gospel, by the Spirit, God showing us love that brought us to Him. And if the church, if there is affection for God today, true affection, then that come because God shed His love on you first. And if God never shed His love then where would you be today? Where would you be had God not showed love to you? We we would be without hope, that's for sure. But in, in 2 Samuel, now you talk about a picture of love. Here's David. And the enemy, the Philistines, has overtook, his home city of Bethlehem. And David says, oh, that I could have drink from the well that's at Bethlehem. Now, he wasn't asking, boys, go get me a barrel of water out of that well. But what he was saying was, the enemies got Bethlehem, and I'd like to take that back. But you know what he had? He had three mighty men. And you know what they did? They loved him. They loved David. It, do, it doesn't tell me specifically that these mighty men loved David. But you know what you can do? You can see it. Because they took their arms and they went and fought inside, beyond, behind enemy lines. And they fought and they went and they got a barrel of water and they brought it back to David. They risked their lives. That he could have a drink out of a well. God gave his son that we could be saved and born again. That we could have righteousness. That the sins and the filth of sin could be washed away and that we could be made holy and that we could escape the wrath of God in hell. The greatest love that's ever been shown. Now, What is God going to do then for those that would reject that sacrifice? You know what you're saying? I'm going to die anyway. I don't care what Jesus did. I'm going to go on in my sin and I'm going to die anyway. It's foolish, ain't it? But man willingly does that very thing. He willfully chooses of his own volition to go that way. And I say, I say amen to everything that our brother said this morning. I say if God don't convince you otherwise, that's the only thing you'll ever choose. You ain't going to come to God. Nobody's coming to God. Except God first draw him. That's the word of the Lord. Much more then, so verse 9, so you talk about a love on display. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So if when I was a sinner and an open rebellion against God and against his word when I despised his word when I despised his commandments and when I desired sin God gave his son to die that I could be saved so much more now now that God has plucked you out of darkness placed you in the kingdom of his dear son He, Paul uses the word in lots of places adoption you know what adoption is? There's a great definition of adoption. And it's me choosing someone that is not mine to be mine. That's what adoption is. You know what God did? God chose to pluck out of sin His church and to set them in His kingdom. And no longer are they children of the devil. No longer is their heart's desire to sin and rebel against God but now they are children of God being adopted in by the choice of God Himself. You ever seen a child choose their parents? That just ain't the way it works, is it? Whether it's natural birth or adoption, the children aren't choosing. And here's man thinking he's going to choose God. Silly, silly thinking. But God, by choice, saved, justified, made righteous those that He's plucked out of darkness. And if while we were sinners and hateful and odious to Him, He would give His Son, then what about now that we're saved? He says, in a let's look at a couple places. In Ephesians chapter 1, I mean, you talk about a secure salvation. The church don't have to worry about dying and going to hell. And by the church, I don't mean those on the roll. I mean them that God saved. Them that God has plucked from darkness and set in the kingdom of His dear Son and they are led by the Spirit of God. They don't have to worry that if they die tonight, they're going to go to hell. Now, if you're going to trust in works, and if you sin real bad today, now ain't that silly sounding? If you sin real bad today, you might have to be worried about where I stand with God. That's not the way it is. No. This is what he says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, He chose us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. I don't know how it could be any more plain. And yet, man argues with that. Well, I chose God. And I chose Him when I wanted to choose Him. That is not Bible. But God chose from before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself and now now people there, people there say, well, you think he predestinates people to hell? He don't have to. Remember where man's going? If God don't intervene, where's man going God don't have to predestine man to hell. He's going there and he's going there happily on his own. Man's own choice and man's own will leads him to hell. No, God's plucking people out of that. Out of destruction and out of judgment and out of wrath into the kingdom of God. Having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will not to my will not that I willed it to be, not that I wanted it bad enough and made God do, but this was according to His will and His pleasure, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. The church is accepted in Christ Jesus and in His work, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. So the church has redemption, ransom in full, that's the meaning of the word, righteousness, holiness, justification, all in the work of the Lord Jesus, and the church does not have to fear the judgment and the wrath of God. If you're in Christ Jesus, then what is there left for me to fear? What I need to be feared of is whether I'm in Christ Jesus or not. But if I'm saved, if I am indeed saved, and a new creature by the operation of God, and the Holy Ghost of God indeed dwells in my life, and I am led by the Spirit of God, then I can rest assured that if I'm in Christ, I'm saved from wrath. Don't have to fear judgment. Don't have to fear the anger and the wrath of God. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Enemies hostile or hateful towards. Were you hateful towards God. Yeah. Now this, this is a shame here, but this is what happens. In the mind of a lost world, they're hateful towards the church. They think it's the church that they've got a problem with. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the Sunday school teacher that they're hateful towards, and they don't like what he has to say. Or the preacher, a lot of times, most of the time, the preacher bears that. And well, I just don't like that preacher and I don't like those people at that church, and I don't like those hypocrites. Well, there's hypocrites everywhere. The devil has planted, by the words of Jesus Christ, there's people in the church that are lost and undone and that are tares that the devil planted there. When Christ himself, in the flesh, had twelve apostles, there was one that was a devil. And he was... Well, he chose to go away. Jesus said he was the devil from the beginning. But he was there with the 12. So yeah, there's hypocrites, there's actors. There's people that do not have a genuine salvation that are pretending to have a genuine salvation. There's people that have nothing in their heart and they profess to have God dwelling with them. That's real. But when we were hateful enemies towards God. See, the problem is it's not the people. I mean, for the most part, we like all the people, who they are. And they've always been nice. And they've never been cross with us. I mean, maybe one or two. But as a whole, nobody's ever been mean to me here. I mean, you, you boil it down, but well, why don't you like them? What is it that they done? Right. What did the preacher do to you that hurt your feelings? What did he say to you? Did he rob you somehow? Did he cheat you somehow? And you know you bullet down and you know what the problem is. It's what the people believe. And it's what the preacher preaches. It's what the teacher teaches. That's what people do not like. So who are you hateful towards? Well, if they're preaching or teaching what the Bible says, your hatefulness is towards God Himself. God wrote this. I've said this many times. This was written way before I was born. I didn't have nothing to do with any of it. Don't blame it on me. God wrote this down through the hands of Paul here in the book of Romans and many other men through the entirety of the book. But that's God's Word. What I say, that don't change it. It don't alter it. What you think does not alter it either. We're going to come to the Word of God or we're not. That's that's the bottom line. That's as simple as it can be. But the hatefulness and the enmities towards God. Now what sense does it make that you're going to make God your enemy? Would you like for the sheriff to be your enemy? No, I'd like for him to like me. What about the sergeant of the highway patrol? Would you like for him to be your enemy? There's a lieutenant in Asheville. You want him to be out to get you and say, Listen, boys, here's a tag number, and this is what they drive. You keep your eyes open, and any time you see them, you pull them over and make sure. Would you like that to happen? What about the boss at work? Would you like for them to be your enemy? No, all of those people, they've got some authority over us. We want them to like us. Well, what about God? Now, the God that Paul, speaking to them at Mars Hill, he says, listen, men and brethren, this God is not an idol sitting in one of your shrines, but this is the God that by His word All things are created and consist. All of you men and women have life in your natural body today because God has saw fit for you to be alive this day. You have an ability to think and reason today because God saw fit for you to have a mind to think with today. God has saw fit and kept you through dangers that you've not even been aware of. He's kept you alive to this day. And this God has set the bounds of our habitation. Here's your news flash. Coronavirus does not set the bounds of man's habitation. God set them beforehand. Paul said to the people at Mars Hill, they were a people still alive. And he said, listen, brethren, brethren, God set the bounds of man's habitation and he's not going to go over that day. God has already determined when I'm going to die. Don't push back on that. Are not the hairs of my head numbered? They are. It's the truth. That's the God that Paul's speaking about. Would you like for that God not only that has power to destroy the body, but he has power after the body is destroyed to cast body and soul into hell. That's not the enemy that we'd want to make. But boy, that word of God, that makes me angry. And that junk, that is the most ignorant junk that I've ever had to sit through In my life. And that man is the biggest dipstick that I've ever had to listen to talk for any length of time. And if I am blessed enough, I'll never be back to hear that foolishness again. You may never be back. And I may never be back either. Because thou fool this night, your soul could be required of you. God could call for man today. So if when we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God, it was when I was an enemy and hateful and odious to Him that God gave His Son. And you know, you can spit on the Son of God today and you can spit on the Word. But know this, God did give Him that you could have righteousness. God gave Him for the whole world. And when man rejects that, he's rejecting the means that God provided for man to be saved. But if when we were enemies, God reconciled us to Him, God didn't wait on me to say I'm sorry, God didn't wait on me to move to an altar, God didn't wait on me to decide I needed to do better, God convinced me of that. God reconciled me to Him when I was His sworn enemy. And if God would do that then... Much more. Would it not be in greater quantity? And not just greater, but much greater. We're talking multiplication and exponential. You multiply times two, that's one thing. But you raise it to the third or the fourth power, <coughs> that's much greater. Exponential. Increase. So if God gave His Son and reconciled me to Himself when I was His enemy, how much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life? If then we were enemies, God performed this work for us. Now that we are saved, how much more can we trust in God to show us His love and His goodness unto us as we live through this life, and when we die, a surety of a home in heaven. He gave His Son when we were enemies, so that now that we're saved, we have hope that is absolutely sure, certain, and steadfast. Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 11, wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. Now there we are. That's where we are in Romans. We're there again in Ephesians. If you want to go back to the first verse of this same chapter, you'll see that we're dead in trespasses and sins. So there was man. But now in Christ Jesus. Now something happened. There's man in sin without hope and without God, an alien. But something happened. Well, I've come to the altar. If you're really saved, I believe we can think just for a minute and we can figure out that that's not what changed. You coming to the altar was not the beginning of your salvation. But before we come, God was already quickening and already working. Here's what changed. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. We would have never came to God had God not came to us. We would have never uh, repented before God had God not convinced us. We would have never desired God had God not desired us. But now, those that are separated are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for He is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby." So the enmity that I had with God and the law-breaking where I had broken the law, all of that was taken care of by the suffering of the Lord Jesus. And you know, the Lord doesn't say, now look, I've done this. Now, Joseph, you're going to have to suffer if you're going to enter in. He don't expect nothing out of me. He's not asking me to make a down payment. He's not asking me to put forward some money. He's not saying give me a show of good faith. But God's reconciling people as their enemies based solely on what God done at the cross of Calvary in Christ Jesus. Now if God brought us out of this place of rebellion and set us now as children of God in His family, eating at His table, I've said this before, it still feels wrong to say this. But it's the Bible. I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That's a co-heir. An equal inheritance. Now if God's made us that, then can we not rest and have no fear knowing that if while we were enemies God brought us out of there, can you not trust God that He's going to bring us through everything else that we would face in this life and when this life leaves, death's a terrible, terrible thing to see, to watch, to experience. That's coming to your house. And that's coming to my house. And one day, you're going to draw your legs up in the bed the last time. You know the church? They can draw their legs up like Jacob did and die in peace with no fear whatsoever. No worry about dying, but hope. An expectation that when they leave here it's all better. I've I've known a few that got a death sentence and I've heard these very words I wish you'd just take me now. I wish that I could just die now. Now who has that peace? those that's resting in Christ Jesus, they've got that assurance that God will safely and surely bring them through all tribulation and all trials and if when I was his enemy he reconciled me, can I not rest that now I'm his child he's going to see to me as long as I live and when I die as well. It's absolutely certain and sure. And not only so, but we also joy in God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. So, that word, if you look at that word atonement closely, at one meant. And that's what you've got God bringing man and himself together, at one. Bringing man into one with himself, exchange or restoration. So the church can rejoice through all things, tribulation, trouble, trials, heartache and heartbreak, to the good times and the pleasurable times, right down to the very deathbed. The church, the called out, the saved, they have something that they can rejoice in always, and it's that Christ Jesus has given them atonement with God they have been brought into reconciliation with God himself in Isaiah 61 verse number 10 Isaiah 61:10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord my soul shall be joyful in my God for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. So there's the picture. Your wedding day, you made sure you was dressed nicely. Whether you're the woman or the groom, you were sure to adorn yourself and to adorn yourself well for that day. Well, you know, that's how God has adorned His children not with natural jewelry or goods, but he has plucked them out of the fire, set them in the kingdom of God, and adorned them with the righteousness of the Son of God. Now to a crowd that says, well, you can have that, but if you don't live like this, then you ain't got it. I say, what kind of a savior have you got then? It ain't the one of the Bible. I tell you, I ain't got anything to fear. Well, you might lose it tomorrow. Not by the Word of God. I am have atonement. And I can rejoice, not in myself, not in what I've done, not in whether I've kept this little law and that little commandment, and I've done this right, and I've done that right, and I've tried real hard. No. It's that Jesus performed it. He completed it. My trust is in Him and He's going to take me through. Now you put trust in anything else, you're ruined. All other ground is sinking. Other ground might make you richer. It might help you worldly. It might increase your status in the community. But know this in the end, all other ground will lead you to destruction. The Lord Jesus died to provide man a perfect and a complete salvation. And if the salvation you have needs you to add something to it, you don't have the one that the Bible tells me of. Now the other argument is, well, you're saying people can be saved and live however they want to. He's going to answer that in chapter 6. That's not at all what I'm saying. It's the work of God. I don't do what I do and I'm not up here teaching hoping to get me an extra crown in glory one day. If what the Lord's done is perfect and complete, then how can I improve on that at all? Can you improve? I don't teach to try to win a crown when I get to the Lord. A lot of foolish But we teach because God causes us when He made us a new creature, changing our desires, bringing us through His yes, Son Jesus. If I quit today and I never come back, you know, I'll still be saved when I die. Do you believe that? I was going to say that. But if I did, I'd be saved when I died. That's how sure my salvation is. But you know, Jeremiah couldn't quit. He said, "I've, I've had enough of this. But there was a fire shut up in his bones and Jeremiah could not quit. But boy, people today can say, I'm mad. And I quit. I'd hate to stand before God with a salvation that I can quit on. There's no retirement to this. There's not. That's all It's on her heart. Anything you'd like to say? Thank you for your attention. Pray for us.